The following is a conversation with Natalia Bailey, a rocket scientist and spacecraft propulsion engineer previously at MIT, and now the founder and CTO of Axion Systems, specializing in efficient space propulsion engines for satellites and spacecraft. So these are not the engines that get us from the ground on Earth out to space, but rather the engines that move us around in space once we get out there. Quick mention of our sponsors. Monk Pack, low-carb snacks, Four Sigmatic mushroom coffee, Blinkist, an app that summarizes books, and Sunbasket, meal delivery service. So the choice is snacks, caffeine, knowledge, or a delicious meal. Choose wisely, my friends. And if you wish, click the sponsor links below to get a discount and to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say something about Natalia's story. She has talked about how when she was young, she would often look up at the stars and dream of alien intelligences that one day we could communicate with. This moment of childlike cosmic curiosity is at the core of my own interest in space, in extraterrestrial life, and in general in artificial intelligence, science, and engineering. Amid the meetings and the papers and the career rat race and all the awards, let's not let ourselves lose that childlike wonder. Sadly, we're on Earth for only a very short time. So let's have fun solving some of the biggest puzzles in the universe while we're here. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review it on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now and no ads in the middle. I tried to make this interesting, but I do give you timestamps. So go ahead and skip if you must, but please do check out the sponsors by clicking the links in the description. It is honestly the best way to support this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars that contain just one gram of sugar, two grams of net carbs, and they're only 140 calories. They're great for anyone following a keto lifestyle, but also the perfect snack for anyone who's trying to cut back on sugar and carbs without sacrificing taste. I'm not sure if everyone who tries to eat keto will feel like I do, but at least for me, low carb has been a huge boost to mental focus and overall energy levels. If you like, you should check out the AMA I did last week where I talk about the benefits of keto had on my life. Try it for yourself and you'll see and we have a special deal for our listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any MonkPack product by visiting MonkPack.com and entering code LEX at checkout. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money guaranteed. To get started, just go to MonkPack.com. That's M-U-N-K-Pack.com and select any product. Then enter the code LEX at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. This show is also brought to you by Four Sigmatic, the maker of delicious mushroom coffee and plant-based protein. I enjoy both. The coffee has lion's mane mushroom for productivity and chaga mushroom for immune support. The, the plant-based protein has immune support as well and tastes delicious. Supporting your immune system is one of the best things you can do right now for your health amidst this pandemic. Not only does Four Sigmatic always have 100% money back guarantee, but they're right now offering big discounts for our listeners. If you go to foursigmatic.com slash Lex, that's foursigmatic.com slash Lex, and get yourself thoroughly over-caffeinated, just like me. If you have to have one addiction in your life, coffee is one of the better ones. This episode 
is also supported by Blinkist, my favorite app for learning new things. Blinkist takes the key ideas from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. I'm a big believer in reading at least uh, an hour a day. As part of that, I use Blinkist almost every day to try out a book I may otherwise never have a chance to read. And in general, it's a great way to broaden your view of the idea landscape out there and find books that you may want to read more deeply. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. I also use Blinkist Shortcast to quickly catch up on podcast episodes I've missed. There are so many podcasts out there and they're so amazing. I love it. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for the listeners of this one particular podcast. Go to Blinkist.com slash Lex to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off of a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist spelled like blink and then IST.com slash Lex to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Lex. Lex is spelled L-E-X. <laughs> this show is also sponsored by Sunbasket. Sunbasket delivers fresh, healthy, delicious meals straight to your door. As you may know, my diet is pretty minimalistic or minimalist. It's both minimalistic and minimalist. That's fun to say. So it's nice to get some healthy variety into the mix. They make it easy and convenient with everything pre-portioned and ready to prep and cook. You can enjoy a delicious, healthy dinner in as little as 15 minutes. I've enjoyed a lot of meals from their menu that fit my, what they call, carb-conscious ways. Some items on the menu that I've written down are black Angus ribeye steak with broccoli and radishes, Italian sausages and vegetable skewers with two romescos, Mediterranean lemon chicken with baby broccoli, artichokes, and olives, and there's many more delicious ones, even in just the carb-conscious category. Right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go to sunbasket.com slash Lex and enter promo code Lex at checkout. Again, visit sunbasket.com slash Lex and use code Lex to get 35 bucks off your order. And now, finally, here's my conversation with Natalia Bailey. You said that you spent your whole life dreaming about space and also pondering the big existential question of whether there is or isn't intelligent life, intelligent alien civilizations out there. So what do you think? Do you think there's life out there? Intelligent life? Intelligent life. That's trickier. I, I think looking at, you know, the the likelihood of a self-replicating organism given how much time the universe has ex existed and how many stars with planets, I think it's likely that there's other life, intelligent life. I'm hopeful, you know, I'm a little discouraged that we haven't yet been in touch. Uh, allegedly, I mean, do you, it's on the, also- in, in our dimensions and right. so on, yeah. It's also possible that uh, they have been in touch and we just haven't, we're too dumb to realize they're communicating with us in whichever it's the it's this Carl Sagan 
idea that they may be communicating at a time scale that's totally different. Like the, their yeah. signals are on a totally different time scale or on a, like a totally different kind of medium of communication. It could be, it could be our own, it could be the birth of like human beings, like that, the, the whatever the magic that makes us who we are, the collective intelligence thing, that could be aliens themselves. That could be the medium of communication. Like the nature of our consciousness and intelligence itself is the medium of communication. And, and we, like being able to ask the questions right. themselves. I've never thought of it that way. Like actually, yeah, asking the question yeah. whether aliens exist might be the very medium by which they communicate. It's like they, they send questions. So some this like collective emergent behavior is is the signal. Is the signal, yeah. <laughs> so that's interesting, uh, yeah. Because yeah. maybe that's how we would communicate with if you think about it, if we were way, way, way smarter, like a thousand years from now, we somehow survive, like how would we actually communicate? In a way that's like if we broadcast the signal, you know, and then it could somehow like percolate throughout the universe, like that signal having an impact multiverse. on- Multiverse. Multiverse, of course. <laughs> uh, that would have a signal, uh, uh, an effect on the most possible, the most, the highest mm. number of possible civilizations. What would that signal be? It might not be like sending a few like stupid little hello world messages. It might be something more impactful. Where It's almost like impactful in a way where they don't have to have the capability to hear it. It like forces the message to have an impact. Right. My train of thought has never gone gone there, but I like it. And also somewhere in there, I think it's implied that something travels faster than the speed of light, which I'm also really hopeful for. Oh, you're hopeful. Are, are you excited by the possibility that there's intelligent life out there? Sort of you work on... On the engineering side of things, it's this very kind of focused pursuit of uh, moving things through space efficiently. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you zoom out, one of the cool things that this enables us to do is find, forget even intelligent life, just life on Mars or on Europa or something like that. Does that excite you? Does that scare you? Oh, it's very exciting. I mean, it's the whole reason I went into the field I'm in is to contribute to building the body of knowledge that we have as a species. Um, so very exciting. Do you think there's life on Mars? Uh, like uh, no longer, well, already living, but uh, currently living, but also no longer living, like that we might be able to find life, as, as some people suspect, basic uh, microbial life. I'm not so sure about in our own solar system and and I do think it might be hard to untangle if we somehow contaminated other things as well. Yeah. Uh so I'm not sure about this close to home. That would be really exciting. Yes. Like do you think about the Drake equation much of like That was what yeah, what got me <laughs> into all of this, yeah. Yeah, cuz uh w one of the questions is how hard is it for life to start on a habitable planet? Like if you have a lot of the basic conditions, not exactly like Earth, but basic Earth-like conditions, how hard is it for life to start? And if you find life on Mars or find life on Europa, that means it's way easier. That's a good thing to confirm that 
if you have a habitable planet, then there's going to be life. And that like immediately, that's that would be super exciting because that means there's like trillions of planets yes. with basic life out there. Though of all the planets in our solar system, Earth is clearly the most habitable. So uh, I would not be discouraged if we didn't find it on another planet in True. our solar system. True, and again, that life could look very different. It's habitable yeah. for Earth-like life, right, exactly. but it could be uh, totally different. I still think that trees are quite possibly more intelligent than humans, but their intelligence is carried out over a time scale that we're just not able to appreciate. Mm -hmm. Like they might be running the entirety of human civilization and we're just like too dumb to realize <laughs> that they're they're the smart ones. Maybe that's the alien message. It's in the trees. It's in the, in the trees. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not in the uh, monolith in the Utah desert. It's in the trees. Right, yeah. <laughs> so let, let's go to space exploration. Uh, how do you think we'd get humans to Mars? I, I think SpaceX and, and Elon Musk will be the ones that get the first human setting foot on Mars. Uh, and probably not that long from now, from us having this conversation. You know, maybe we'll inflate his timeline a little bit, but I tend to believe uh, the goals he sets. So I think that will happen relatively soon. Um, as far as, you know, when and what it will take to get humans living there in a more permanent way, um, you know, I have a glib answer, which is, you know, when we can invent a time machine to go back to the early Cold War and instead of uniting around sending people to the moon, um, we pick Mars as the destination. Uh, so really, you know, I, I say that because there's nothing truly scientifically or technologically impossible about doing that soon. Uh, it's more, you know, politically and financially and, and those are the obstacles, I think, to that. Well, I wonder of when you colonize with, you know, more than, I say, five people on Mars, you have to start thinking about the kind of, uh, like, rules you have on Mars. And yeah. uh, speaking of the Cold War, who gets to own the land? You know, you start planting flags, and you start to make decisions. And, uh, <laughs> like, SpaceX has this nice, it's probably a little bit trolly, but they have this nice paragraph in their contracts where it's like it's it talks about that uh, like human uh, governments on Earth or Earth governments have no uh, jurisdiction on Mars. Like the rules, the Martians get to define their own <laughs> rules. Sure. It sounds very much like uh, like the founding fathers for this country. That's the kind of language. Uh, it's interesting that that's that that's in there, and it makes you think perhaps that needs to be leveraged. Like you have to be very clever about leveraging that to uh, to create a little bit of a Cold War feeling. It seems like we're, we, we humans need a little bit of a competition. Do you think that's necessary to su succeed and um, to get the, the necessary investment or can the pure pursuit of science be enough? No, I think we're seeing right now the pure pursuit of science I mean, that results in pretty tiny budgets for exploration. Um, there has to be some disaster, impending doom um, to get us onto another planet in a permanent way. I don't know 
financially, I just don't know if the private sector can support that. And but I don't, I you know, I don't wish that there is some catastrophe coming our way that that spurs us to do that. Yeah, it's un, I'm unsure what the business model is for colonizing Mars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like there is for, we'll talk about satellites, there's probably a lot of business models around satellites, but there's not enough short-term business. I guess that's how business works. Like you should have a, <laughs> you should have a path to making money in like the next 10 years. Well, and maybe even more broadly and, and looping back to something we we said earlier, I don't know that getting humans off this planet and, you know, spreading um, like bacteria is what we're supposed to be doing in the first place. So yeah. maybe we can go, but should we? And and I'm probably a an unusual person for thinking that in my industry because humans want to explore. But I almost wonder, you know, are we putting unnecessary obstacles, like uh, we're very finicky biological things in the way of some more robotic or, you know, more silicon-based exploration. Um, And yeah, do we need to colonize and spread? I'm not sure. What do you think is the role of AI in space? Do you, uh, in your work, again, we'll talk about it, but do, do you see more and more of the space vehicles spacecraft being run by artificial intelligence systems more than just like the flight control, but like the management. Yeah. I don't have a lot of color to the dreams I have about way in the future and, and AI, but I do think that removing, you know, it's hard for humans to even make a trip to Mars, much less go anywhere farther than that. And I think we'll have, you know, more, this again, I'm probably unusual in in having these thoughts, but perhaps be able to to generate more knowledge and understand more if we stop trying to send humans and instead, you know, I don't know if we're talking about AI um, in a truly, you know, artificial intelligence way or AI as as we kind of use it today, um, but maybe sending a petri dish or two of like stem cells and some robotic handlers instead, if we still need to send our DNA because we're really stuck on that. Um, But if not, you know, maybe not even that Petri dish. Um, So I see, I think what I'm saying is, you know, I see a a much bigger role in the future of AI for space exploration. It's kind of sad to think that, uh, I mean, I'm sure we'll eventually send a spacecraft with uh, efficient propulsion, like some of the stuff you work on, out that travels just really far with some robots on it and with some with some DNA in a petri dish. And then human civilization destroys itself. And then there'll just be this floating spacecraft that eventually gets somewhere or not. That's a sad thought, like this lonely spacecraft just kind of traveling through space and humans are all dead. Well it depends it depends on what the what the goal is, right? (laughs) another way to look at it is we've preserved it's like a little time capsule of knowledge dna you know that we've that will outlive us well that's beautiful yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's how i sleep at night (laughs) so you also mentioned that you wanted to be an astronaut yes so even though you said you're unusual and thinking like 
it's nice here on Earth, and then we might want to be sending robots up there. You wanted to be a human that goes out there. Would you like to one day travel to Mars? You know, if it's if it becomes sort of more open to civilian travel and that kind of thing. Like, are you uh, like vacation wise? Like, if we talk, if we're talking vacations, would you like to vacation on Earth or vacation on Mars? I wish that I had a better answer, but no, I wanted to be an astronaut because I, first of all, I like working in labs and doing experiments and. Um, I wanted to go to like the coolest lab, the ISS, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. and do some experiments there. Uh, that's being decommissioned, which is sad, but you know, there will be others, I'm sure. Um, the ISS is being decommissioned. Yes. I think by 2025, it's not going to be in use anymore, but I think, um, there are other, there are private companies that are going to be putting up stations and things. So it's primarily like a research lab, essentially. Yes. Research lab in space. That's a cool way to say it. It's like the coolest possible research yes. lab. That's where I wanted to go. And now, though, my you know risk profile has changed a little bit. I have three little ones, yeah. and um, I won't I won't be in the first thousand people to go to Mars. Let's put it that way. Yeah, Earth is kind of nice. We have our troubles, but overall, it's pretty nice. Again, it's the Netflix. Okay. Let's talk rockets. Uh, how does a rocket engine work or any kind of engine that can get us to space or float around in space? The basic principle is conservation of momentum. So um, you throw stuff out the back of the engine and oops, uh, and that pushes the rocket and the spacecraft in the other direction. So uh, there are two main types of of rocket propulsion. Um, the one people are more familiar with is chemical because it's loud and there's fire. Um, and that's what's used for launch and is more televised. So um, in, in those types of systems, you usually have a, f a fuel on an oxidizer and um, they react and combust and release stored chemical energy. Um, and, and that energy heats um, heats the resultant gas and and that's funneled out the back through a nozzle uh, directed out the back and and then that momentum exchange um, pushes the spacecraft forward. Is there an interesting difference in liquid and solid fuel in those contexts? They're both lumped in the same. So uh, chemical just means that the release of energy from from those bonds essentially. So a solid fuel works the same way. Uh, and the other main category is electric propulsion. So instead of chemical energy, you're using electrical energy, um, usually from, you know, batteries or solar panels. And uh, in this case, the stuff you're pushing out the back uh, would be charged particles. So um, instead of combustion and heat, you, you end up with charged particles and you force them out the back of the spacecraft using either an electrostatic field or electromagnetic. Um, and But it's the same momentum exchange and, and same idea stuff out the back and everything else goes forward. Cool, so those are the big two categories. What What's the difference maybe in like the challenges of each, the use cases of each, and uh, how they're used today, the physics of each? Like, mm. and where they're used 
all that kind of stuff. Anything interesting about the two categories that distinguishes them besides the the chemical one being the big sexy flames and yeah, fire. Fire. <laughs> yeah. Chemical is very well understood. Um, you know, a in its simplest form, it's like a firework. So it's been around since 400 BC or something like that. Um, so that even the big engines are quite well understood. I think, you know, one of the, one of the last gaps there is probably, um, what exactly are the products of combustion? Um, our modeling abilities kind of fall apart there, um, because it's hot and gases are moving and, uh, you end up kind of, you know, having to venture into um, lots of different interdisciplinary fields of science to try to solve that. And that's quite complex, but we have pretty good um, models for some of the more like emergent behaviors of that system anyways. But that's, I think, one of the last unsolved pieces. Um, and really the the n kind of what people care about there is is making it more fuel efficient. So the chemical stuff, um, you can get a lot of um, instantaneous thrust, but it's not very fuel efficient. It's much more fuel efficient to go with the electric type of propulsion. Um, so that's where people spend a lot of their time um, is trying to make that more efficient in terms of thrust per unit of fuel. And then um, there's always considerations like Heating and cooling, it's very hot, which is good if it heats the gases, but, you know, bad if it melts the rocket and, and things like that. So there's always a lot of work on heating and cooling and, and the engine cycles and things like that. Um, and then on electric propulsion, I find it, like, much more refreshingly poorly understood. Uh, <laughs> Lots more mysteries. Yeah, I think so. Um, one of the classes I took in college spent we spent 90% of the class on chemical propulsion and then the last 10% on electric and the professor said like we only sort of understand how it works but it works kind of and it's like that's that's, that's interesting <laughs> yeah and uh, you know even uh, an ion engine which is probably one of the most straightforward because it's it has just an it's just an electrostatic engine but it has this really awesome combination of like quantum mechanics and uh, material science and fluid dynamics and uh, electrostatics and and um, it's just very intriguing to me. Um, First of all, can you actually zoom out even more? Like because you mentioned ion propulsion yeah. engine is a subset of, of electric. Electri mm -hmm. So like maybe is there a categories of electric engines and then we can zoom in on ion propulsion? Yes. So. Sure. There's um, the two most kind of conventional types that have been around since the 60s are ion engines and hall thrusters. And ion engines are a little bit simpler because they don't use a magnetic field for generating thrust. Um, and then there are also um, some other types of plasma engines, but that don't fit into those two categories. So just kind of other plasma like... Um, a Vasimir engine, which we could get into. Um, and then those are probably the main three categories that would be fun to talk about. Oh, and then, of course, the category um, of engine that I work on, which is um, has a lot of similarities to an ion engine, but could be considered its own class called a colloid thruster.
colloid. Cool. Okay. So what is an ion propulsion? I imagine. Uh, okay. So in an ion engine, you have an ionization chamber and you inject the propellant into that chamber. And this is usually um, a neutral gas like xenon or argon. Uh, so you inject that into the chamber and you also inject um, a, a stream of really hot, high energy electrons and everything's just moving around um, very randomly in there. And the the whole goal is to have um, one of those electrons collide with one of those neutral atoms and turn it into an ion. So kick off a secondary electron. And now you have- Plasma. Uh, yes. Okay. And now you have, <laughs> um, uh, and now you have a charged, you know, xenon or argon ion, and and more electrons and so on. Um, and then uh, some fraction of those ions will happen to make it to this downstream um, electric field that we set up between two grids with holes in them. Mm. And you know, in terms of area, the same amount of those ions also makes runs into the walls and lose their charge. And um, that's where some of the inefficiencies come in. But the very lucky few make it to those holes in, in that grid. And there are um, two grids, actually, and you apply a, a voltage differential between them, and, and that sets up an electric field. And a charged particle in an electric field uh, creates a force. Uh, and so those ions are accelerated out the back of the engine, and the reaction force is um, is what pushes the spacecraft forward. Um, if you're, you know, following along and tallying these charges, now we've just sent a positive beam of ions out the back of the spacecraft, um, and and for our purposes here, the spacecraft is neutral. So eventually, um, those ions will come back and hit the spacecraft because it's a positive beam. So you also have to have an external cathode um, producer of electrons outside the engine that pumps electrons into that beam and neutralizes that. So now it's net neutral everywhere and it won't come back to the spacecraft. So that's that's an ion engine. What temperature are we talking about here? So in terms of like the, the chemical base engines, those are super hot. Uh, you mentioned plasma here. How hot does this thing get? Um, I mean, is that an interesting thing to talk about in a sense that, is that an interesting yeah. distinction or is heat? I mean, it's all gonna be hot. No, so it, it's important, uh, especially for some of these smaller satellites people are into launching these days. So the... It, it's important because you have the plasma, but also those high energy electrons are hot. And um, if you have a lot of those that are going into the walls, you do have to care about the temperature. So um, I, I'm having trouble remembering off the top of my head. I think they're at like 100 electron volts in terms of the electron energy. And then I'd have to remember how to convert that into Kelvin. Can you stick your hand in it? Not no, temperature. not recommended. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what's a colloid engine? So the same rocket people that um, came up with with these ideas for electric propulsion, um, probably in the middle of, of last century, uh, also realized that there's one more place to get charged particles from um, if you're going to be using electric propulsion. So you can take a gas and you can ionize it, 
But there are also some liquids, particularly ionic liquids, which is what we use, that you also can um, use as a source of ions. And if you have ions and you put them in a field, you generate a force. So they recognize that. But um, part of being able to leverage that technique is being able to kind of manipulate those liquids on a scale of nanometers or, or, you know, very few microns. So, you know, the diameter of a human hair or something like that. And in the fifties, there was no way to do that. So they wrote about it in some books and then it kind of died for a little bit. And then with, um, silicon mems, computer processors, and, and when foundry started becoming more ubiquitous and my advisor, um, started at MIT, uh, kind of put those ideas back together and was like, hey, actually, there's now a way to build this and bring this other technique to life. Um, and so the way that the way that you actually get the the ions out of those liquids um, is you put the liquid in a in again, a strong electric field, and the electric field stresses the liquid. And you keep increasing the field, and eventually the liquid will assume a, I'll go this way, a, a conical shape. Um, it's the it's when the electric field pressure that's pulling on it exactly balances the liquid's own restoring force, which is its surface tension. Mm-hmm. Cool. So you have this balance, and the liquid assumes a cone um, when it's perfectly balanced like that. And at the tip of a cone, um, the radius of curvature goes to zero right at the tip, um, and uh, the radius, uh, sorry, the electric field um, right at the tip of a sharp object would go to infinity because uh, it goes um, uh, as one over the radius and one over the radius squared. And instead of the electric field going to infinity and maybe like generating a wormhole or something, um, a jet of ions instead starts you know, issuing from mm-hmm. the tip of, of that liquid. So the field becomes strong enough there that you can pull ions um, out of the liquid. Yeah, what is the liquid we're talking about? With, so, um, or is it, there's a bunch of different ones. You can do it with, um, with different types of liquids. It depends on, you know, how easily you can free ions from their neighbors and if it has enough surface tension so that you can build up a high enough electric field. But um, what we use are called ionic liquids, and they're really just positive. They're uh, they're very similar to salts, but they happen to be liquid over a really wide range of temperatures. This sounds like really cool. It, <laughs> okay, yes. so how big is the uh, how big is the cone? Are we talk uh, what what's the size of this cone that so generates the ions? So if you have a cone that's emitting pure ions, um, the I can't remember if it's the radius or diameter, but um, that emission is happening from of that cone is something like 20 nanometers. Oh, <laughs> I was so. imagining something slightly bigger, but so like this is, so this is tiny, tiny. Yes. Hence the only being able to do it recently. Yeah, that's right. So this is all controlled by a computer, I guess. Like, or like, how, <laughs> how do you control, <laughs> so, how do you create a cone that generates ions at a scale of nanometers exactly? So, The kind of main trick to making this work is that physically we manufacture hundreds or thousands of sharp structures and then supply the liquid to the tips. So that does a few things. Um, It makes sure that we know where the ion beams are forming so we can put holes in the grid above them to let them actually leave instead of hitting. Cool. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> but it also reduces the actual field we have to, the voltage we have to apply to create that field because the field will be much stronger if we can already give the liquid a tip to form on. Um, and those tips we form have radii of curvature um, on the order of probably like single microns. So we are working at a little bit larger scale, but once we create that support and the electric field can be focused at that tip, then the tiny little cone can form. On so wait, so there's something in the, there's an already like a hard material yes. that like gives you the base for the cone mm -hmm. and then you're pouring like liquid over it, whatever. From the, the bottom, yeah, it's porous. So we actually supply it from the back of the chip and then And then liquid wicks. forms on top yeah. on, on that structure. Yeah. And then you somehow make it like super sharp, the liquid, mm -hmm. so the ions can mm -hmm. leave. <laughs> uh, and then we've applied that field to get those <laughs> ions, and that same field then accelerates them. That's awesome. And there's like a bunch of these? Yeah. Like, I should have I should have brought something. Um, so we... Well, you could just pretend that yes. you have some nanometer cones on, on so the table So actually, here. you know, kind of about this scale, um, we build we call them thruster chips and it's just a convenient form factor and it's a square centimeter. And on each square centimeter today, we have about 500 of the actual physical, we call them emitters, those physical cones. Um, and we're working on increasing that by a factor of four in the coming months. In, in size or in the in density? In number, in the density, the number of emitters within okay. the same square centimeter chip. So that thing, because I think I've seen pictures of you with like a tiny thing in your yeah. hand, that must be the thing. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so that's that. an engine. Um, so that is kind of the ionization chamber and thrust producing part of it. What's not shown you know, in that picture, um, is the propellant tank. So we can keep supplying more and more of the liquid to those um, emission sites. And then we also provide a power electronic system that talks to the spacecraft and turns our device on and off. So that's the colloid engine. Yes. That's the core of the colloid engine. Um, it's the way I've been talking about it. It's um, more of ion electrospray colloid um tends to mean like liquid droplets coming off of the jet. But if you make smaller and smaller cones, you get pure ions. So we're kind of like a subset of colloid, yes. What uh, aspects of this? You said that it's been full of mystery from the physics perspective. What aspects of this are understood and what are still full of mystery? Yeah, recently um, we've been understanding the kind of instabilities and, and stable regimes of, um, you know, how much liquid do you supply and, and what field do you apply and um, why is it flickering on and off or why does it have these weird behaviors? So that's in the past just couple years, that's um, become much more understood. Um, I think the two areas that come to mind as far as um, not as well understood are um, the boundary between, you know, you have, um, we, we actually use kind of big molecular ions. And if you're looking at the molecular scale, you have, you know, some ions that you've extracted and they're in this electric field. One ion, you know, it's a big molecule. It's getting energy from the electric field. And some of that energy is going into the bonds and making it vibrate and doing weird things to it. Sometimes it breaks them apart. And then 
zooming out to the whole beam, the beam has some behaviors as this beam of ions, and there's a big gap between what are those, what, how do you connect those, um, and how do we understand that better so that we can understand the beam performance of, of the engine. Is that a theory question or is that an engineering question? Theory, definitely. We're, Axion is a, a startup, and we're more in the business of building and testing and observing um, and characterizing, um, and we're not really diving much into the, that theory right now. Okay, so zooming out a little bit on the physics, uh, apologize for the way too big of a question, but to you from either us, you mentioned Axion is you know, more of sort of an engineering endeavor, right? Mm -hmm. But from a perspective of physics in general, science in general, or the side of engineering, what do you think is the most, to you, like beautiful and captivating and inspiring idea in this space? In this space, and then I'm going to zoom out a little bit more, but um, in this space, I keep butting up against material science questions. So I, over the past 10 years, I feel like every problem or interesting thing I, I want to work on, if you dig deep enough, you end up in material science land, uh, which I find kind of exciting and it makes me want to dig in more there. And um, I was just, you know, even for our technology, when we have to move the propellant from the tank to the tip of the emitters, we rely a lot on capillary action and you're getting into wetting and surface energies. At a scale of like nano. Yeah. I mean, scale. you're, it's, it all, if you look further, it's quantum too, but it, it all is, you know, Wait, would, capillary action at the quantum level. <laughs> yeah, so I would. I. I uh, it that's all so cool. comes back to me to you know material science. There's so much yeah. we don't understand at these sizes, um, and I, I find that um, inspiring and exciting. Um, and then more broadly, you know, I remember when I learned that the same equation that describes flow over an airfoil is used to price options, the Black-Scholes equation. And I was like, and it's, you know, just a partial differential equation, but that kind of connectedness of the universe, you know, I, well, I don't want to use <laughs> options pricing and the universe in the same, but you know what I mean? This connectedness I find really magical. Yeah, the patterns that mathematics reveals yes. seems to echo in a bunch of different places. Yes. Yeah, there's just weirdness. It's like... It really th makes you think. I think they're definitely living in a simulation. Like whoever, whoever programmed <laughs> I like it, that that's your conclusion. Is, is using <laughs> I know, is they're using like shortcuts to program it. Like they didn't. They're just copying pastes some code <laughs> for the different parts. Yeah, it's think just, of something new or just paste from over yeah, there. They won't notice. My conclusion from that was, I'm going to go interview for finance jobs. So I had like a little detour. Um, that's the back. That's the backup option. So. In terms of using uh, coal engines, what's what's an interesting difference between uh, propulsion of a rocket from Earth when you're standing on the ground to orbit, and then the kind of propulsion necessary for once you get out to orbit or to, to like deep space to to move around? Yes, the reason you can't use an engine like mine to get off the ground is. You know, the thrust it generates 
is instantaneous thrust is very small, but if you if you have the time and and can accumulate that acceleration, you can still reach speeds that are um, very interesting for exploration and and even for missions with humans on them. Um, a, an interesting direction I think we need to go as as humans exploring space is um, the power supplies for electric propulsion are are limiting us in that um, you know solar panels are really inefficient and and bulky and batteries I don't know when anybody's ever gonna. Um, improve battery technology. I know a lot of people that work on that. Um, and nuclear power, um, you, we could have a lot more powerful electric propulsion systems. So they would be extremely fuel efficient, but more instantaneous thrust to do more interesting missions um, if we could start launching more nuclear systems. But So like so something that's powered, nuclear powered, that's the right way to say it. Yeah. That, but is in a small enough container that could be launched? Yeah. So, um, I mean, as a world, we do launch um, spacecraft with nuclear power systems on board, but size is, is one consideration. It hasn't been a big focus. So the the reactors and the heaters and everything are bulky, and so they're really only suitable for some of the much bigger interplanetary stuff. Um, so that's one issue, but then it's a whole, like, rat's nest of political stuff as well. I heard, uh, I think Elon described, or somebody, but I think, I think it was Elon that described the uh, eVTOL, like electrical mm. vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. So basically saying rockets, I mean, obviously the, Elon is interested in electric vehicles, right? But he said that rockets can't, uh, in, the, in the near term, it doesn't make sense for them to be electrical. Uh, what do you see a world with the rockets that we use to get into orbit are also electric based? Uh, it's possible you can produce the thrust levels you need, but you need this uh, a much bigger power supply, and, and like I think that would be nuclear. And the only way people have been able to launch them at all is that they're in a you know 100 times redundancy safe mode while they're being launched and they're not turned on until. They're farther off. So if you were to actually try to use it on launch, uh, I think a lot of people would still have an issue with that. But someday. It's, a, it's an interesting concept, nuclear. It seems like people, like everybody that works on nuclear power has shown how safe it is as a source of energy. I know, right. And, uh, and yet we are seem to be, I mean, based on the history, based on the excellent HBO series, I'm Russian <laughs> with the Chernobyl. It seems like we have our risk estimation about this particular power source is uh, drastically inaccurate. But that's that's yeah. a fascinating idea that we would use nuclear as a source for our vehicles mm -hmm. uh, and not just in outer space. That's cool. I'm gonna have to look into that. That's super interesting. Well, um, just last year, Trump eased up a little bit on the regulations and NASA and hopefully others are are starting to pick up on the development. So now is a good time to look into it because there's actually some movement. Is that a hope for you to to explore different energy sources that the entirety of the vehicle uses something like you know, uh, like the, the entirety of the propulsion systems for all aspects of the vehicle's mm -hmm. life travel? is the same or electric? Is it possible for it to be the same? Like the colloid engine being used for everything? You could. 
And you would have to do it in the same way we do different stages of rockets now, where once you've used up an an engine um, or a stage, you let it go because there's really no point in holding on to it. So I wouldn't necessarily want to use the the same engine for the whole thing, but the same technology I think would be interesting. Okay, so it's possible. All right, but uh, yeah, in comes terms down to the power source. The power source. It's, that's really interesting. But for the current power sources and its current use cases, what's the use case for electric? Like the uh, the the coilite engine. Can you talk about where they're used today? Sure. So, chemical engines are still used um, quite a bit once you're in orbit, but that's also where you might choose instead to use an electric system. And what people do with them, and and this includes, you know, the ion engines and hall thrusters and R engine, um, is basically any maneuvering you need to do once you're dropped off. Um, there's even if your only goal was to just stay in your orbit and not move for the life of your mission, you need propulsion to accomplish that because the Earth's gravity field changes as you go around in orbit and pulls you out of your little box. Um, There are other perturbations um, that that can throw you off a bit. Um, And then, you know, most people want to do things a little bit more interesting, like uh, maneuver to avoid being hit by space debris or uh, perhaps lower their orbit to take a higher resolution image of something and then return. Um, at the end of your mission, uh, you're supposed to responsibly get rid of your satellite, whether that's um, burning it up. But if you're in geo, um, you want to push it higher into graveyard orbit. Um, what's geo? What's what's um, so low graveyard? Earth orbit and then geosynchronous orbit or geostationary orbit? And there's a graveyard. What's yeah, graveyard? so those satellites are at. Um, like 40,000 kilometers. So if they were to try to push their satellites um, back down to burn up in the atmosphere, they would need you know even more propulsion than they've had for the whole lifetime of their mission. So instead they push them higher where it'll take you know a million years for it to naturally deorbit. Um, so we're also cluttering that higher bit up as well, but it's not as pressing as as, Leo, which is low Earth orbit, where more of these commercial missions are going now. Cool. So, what, how hard is the collision avoidance problem there? You said some debris and stuff. So, like, how much propulsion is needed? Like, how much is uh, the life of a satellite is just like, oh crap, trying trying to avoid like little yeah, things right in there? I think one of the recent, um, you know, rules of thumb I heard was per year, some of these small satellites are doing like three collision avoidance maneuvers. Um, so that's, oh, not that's too not, bad. yeah, but it's well, not zero. Um, and it, yeah, it takes a lot of, um, planning and people on the ground and, you know, n- none of that really, I don't think right now is autonomous. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. And then we have a lot of folks taking advantage of, you know, Moore's law and cheaper spacecraft. So they're launching them up without the ability to maneuver themselves. And they're like, well, I don't know, just don't hit me. <laughs> and three times a year, that could be become affordable if it's like, if it gets hit, maybe it won't be damaged kind of thing, that kind of logic. Affordable in that instead of launching one satellite, they'll launch, you know, 20 small ones. Yeah, so yeah. if one gets taken out, yeah. that's okay. But the problem is that, you know, one good-sized satellite getting hit, um, that's like a ballistic event that turns into 10,000 pieces of debris that right. then are the things that go and hit. The other satellites, yeah. So do you you see a world where, like in your sense, 
in your own work and just in the space industry in general, do you see that people are moving towards bigger satellites or smaller satellites? Is there going to be a mix? Like what's, and what are we talking, what, what does it mean for a satellite to be big and, what's, and small? What size so are we big, talking So the space industry prior to, I don't know, 1990, you know, I guess the bulk of, the majority of satellites were the size of a school bus and <laughs> cost wow. a couple billion dollars. Um, and now, you know, our first launches were on um, satellites the size of shoeboxes that were built by high school students. So that's a very different, you know, to give you the two ends of the spectrum. Um, big satellites will, I think they're here to stay, at least as far as I can see into the future, um, for things like broadcasting. Um, you want to be able to you know, broadcast to as many people as possible. Um, there, you also can't just go to small satellites um, and say Moore's law for things like optics. So if you have an an aperture on your satellite, you know that just that doesn't follow Moore's law. That's that's different. So it's always going to be the size it it will be. You know, unless there's some new physics that comes out that I'm not aware of. Um, but if you need a resolution and you're at an altitude, that kind of sets your the size of your telescope. Um, but because of Moore's law, we we are able to do a lot more with smaller packages, and and with that, be, you know, comes more affordability and opening up access to space to more and more people. Well, what's the smallest satellite you've seen go up there? Like, what what are the smallest kind? You said shoeboxes. Yeah, so I think you know the smallest there. A uh, smallest common form factor can fit a softball inside. Wow. Um, so that's 10 centimeters on each side. So cool. Um, but then there are some companies working on, um, you know, fractions of that even. And, and they're it, doing things like um, IoT type application. So it's very low, you know, bandwidth um, type things. But they're finding some niches for those. You mean like there's a business, there's a thing to do with them? Yes. Either. Like, what do you do with a small satellite like that? Um, you can, you know, track a ship going across the ocean. As like, if you need to, if you're just pinging something, you know, yeah. you can handle that that amount of data um, and, and so those latencies to, and so on. You have to have propulsion on that. You have to have a little engine. No, those are just you know letting fall out of the sky. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but what? Uh, so, what kind of satellites would you equip a colloid engine on? Anything that's bigger than probably about 20 kilograms, um, anything that needs to stay up for more than a year, or anything somebody spent more than like 100K to build are kind of the ways I would think about it. That's a lot of use cases. What's, yeah. a, sm what's a small set? Like what, what small category? Small set's actually very big. I think it's like <laughs> 700 kilograms or kidding my microphone. Huh. Um, maybe 1,000 kilograms down to... 200 kilograms or right. uh, people have their own kind of definitions of how they break them up. But small sat is still quite large. And then um, it's kind of also applied as a blanket term for anything that's not a school bus size satellite. So, we need to get our jargon straight industry. <laughs> so what uh, do you see? Do you see a possible future where, you know, there's a few thousand satellites up there now, a couple thousand of them mm -hmm. functioning. Do you see a future where there's like millions of satellites up up in orbit? Or forget millions, tens of thousands, which just seems like where the natural trajectory of the way things are going now is going. Tens of thousands, yes. 
the two, you know, buckets of applications. One is imaging and the other is communication. Um, so imaging, uh, I think that will plateau because one satellite or one constellation can take an image or a video and sell it to, you know, infinity customers. Um, but if you're providing communications like broadband internet or satellite cell or something like that, satellite phone, um, you know, you're you're limited by your transponders and, and so on. So to serve more people, you actually need more satellites and and perhaps at the rate, you know, our data consumption and things are going these days. Um, yeah, I can see tens of thousands of satellites. Can I ask you a ridiculous question? Yes. So I've recently watched this documentary on Netflix about uh, flat earthers mm -hmm. that, you know, the people that believe in a flat earth. As, some, as somebody who develops propulsion systems for, for, for satellites and for spacecraft, what's, uh, to use the most convincing evidence that the earth is round? Probably some of the photos taken from the moon. Photos from the moon. Okay, yeah. so it's not from the from the satellite space. You yeah, like... I think seeing the that perspective, I maybe I'm just I'm answering to personally because I really love those photos. Because they're beautiful. Yeah, I really like the ones that show the moon and um, the lunar lander, and they're taken a little bit farther back. So you see Earth and first you're like, wow, that's tiny and we're insignificant and that's kind of sad. But then you see this really cool thing that we landed on another, yeah. you know, planetary body and you're like, oh, okay. Can you actually see her? I, 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 don't, I don't know yeah, if I Yeah, I'll send you, those. I'll send you that picture. Because I love the pictures or videos of just Earth from more, from orbit and so on. Right, like yeah. Those, that's really beautiful. That that's like a perspective shifter. That's the pale blue dot, right? It probably appears tiny. Yeah, and just that you know juxtaposition of the insignificance, but You're in another... we built this really cool thing. <laughs> yeah, um, take I just the picture. love that. Yeah. Oh, uh, that'd be cool. I can't. I personally love the idea of humans stepping on Mars. I'm such a sucker for the romantic notion of that and being able to take pictures from Mars. Like so, you would go. I uh, <laughs> I uh yeah I would be what did you say you said you wouldn't be not in the, the first, first thousand thousand yeah. which it's funny because to me that's that's brave to be in the first million I think when the uh, Declaration of Independence was signed in the United States that was like two million people so I would like to show up when they're signing those documents okay. So maybe the two million. Like oh, that's one, an interesting one. way to think about it. Because okay. like then we're like participating as citizenry and defining the, the mm -hmm. direction. So it's, it's not the technical risk. You just don't want to show up somewhere that's like America before. <laughs> yeah, because before it's okay. I, I, from a psychological perspective, it's just going to be a stressful mess as, mm -hmm. as people have studied, right? It's like, it's people, uh, most likely the process of colonization like looks like basically a prison. <laughs> like you're in a very tight enclosed space with people and it's just a really mm -hmm. stressful environment. You know, how do you select the kind of people that will go and then there'll be drama. There's always drama. <laughs> and I just want to show up when there's some rules. 
But I mean, you know, it depends. So I'm not worried about the health and the technical difficulties. Yeah. I'm more worried about the psychological difficulties. And also just not being able to tweet. Like, what are you gonna, how are you, <laughs> yeah. how can you, there's no Netflix. So yeah, maybe not in the first million, but the first hundred uh, thousand. It's exciting to define the direction of a new, like how often do we not just have a revolution to redefine our government? as you know, smaller countries sure. are still doing to this day, start over. but literally start over from, from scratch. There's uh, just our financial system. It could be like based on cryptocurrency. You could think about like how democracy, you know, we have, we have now the technology that can enable pure democracy, for example, if we choose to do mm, that, yeah. as opposed to representative democracy, all those kinds of things. So we talked about two uh, different forms of propulsion, which are super exciting. So the chemical base, that's doing pretty well. And then the electric base is, um, are there types of propulsion that might sound like science fiction right now, but are actually within the reach of science in the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years that you kind of think about, or maybe even within the space of even just like, like even ion engines, is there like breakthroughs that might 10X the thing, like really improve it? So, you know, the real game changer would be propellantless propulsion. And so every couple of years you see a new, now a startup or um, a researcher comes up with some contraption for producing thrust that didn't require, you know, we've been talking about conservation of momentum, mass times velocity out the back, um, mass so there's usually a mass forward. Yes, that's what exactly. And you have to, you know, carry that up with you, or find it on an asteroid, or harvest it from somewhere if you didn't bring it with you. So not having to do that would be, you know, one of the ultimate game changers. Um, and and I, you know, unless there are new types of physics, um, I don't know how we do it, but it comes up often. So it's something I I do think about and. Um, you know, the one, I think it's called the Casimir effect. Um, if you can, if you have two plates and, and the space between them is on the order of these, like the wavelength of these ephemeral vacuum particles that pop into and out of existence or something. Um, I may be confusing multiple types of propellantless forces, but um, that that could be real and could be something that, that we use eventually. What would be uh, the power source? Yeah, the most recent engine like this that has was just debunked this year, I think, in, in March or something, was called the M-Drive. And um, supposedly you, you used a power source, so you know batteries or solar panels, to generate microwaves into this resonant cavity. And people claimed it produced thrust. So they, they went straight from this really loose concept to building a device and testing it. And they said, we've measured thrust. And sure, on their thrust balance, they saw thrust. And different researchers built it and tested it and got the same measurements. And so it was looking actually pretty good. Um, no one could explain how it worked. But what they said was that um, this inside the cavity, um, the microwaves themselves didn't change, but the speed of light changed inside the cavity. So relative to that, um, you know, their wow. momentum was okay. conserved. Um, and I don't, you know, I, whatever. Um, but finally someone, I think at NASA built the device, tested it, got the same thrust, then unhooked it, 
flipped it backwards and turned it on, but got the same thrust in the same direction again. And so they're like, this is just an interaction with the test setup or, you know, some God. the chamber or something like that. Well said. So um thwarted again. Um, but you know, it would it would be so wonderful for everybody if we could figure out how to do it. But I d I don't know. That's an interesting twist on it because that's more about efficient travel, long distance travel, right? That's not necessarily about speed. That's more sure. about enabling like yeah. Less so hook that up to the nuclear power supply. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but still, in terms yeah. of speed, in terms of trying to, so there, there's recently, it's already I think been debunked or close to being debunked, but the uh, signal, a weird signal from um, our nearby friends, nearby exoplanets from uh, Proxima Centauri, uh, a signal that's 4.2 light years away. So, you know, the the thought is, uh, it'd be, it'd be kind of cool if there's life out there, alien life, uh, but it'd be really cool if we could fly out there and check. And so what kind of propulsion, and do, do you think about what kind of propulsion will allow us to travel close to the speed of light, or, you know, half the speed of light, all those kinds of things that would allow us to get to Proxima Centauri in a reasonable, in a lifetime? You know, there's the project breakthrough star shot yeah. um, that's looking at sending those tiny little chip sets um, And like there, accelerating actually. really fast. Yeah, using a laser. So launching them and then while they're still relatively close to the earth, you know, blasting them with some, I forget what, even what power level you needed to, to accelerate them fast enough to get there in 20 Super years. Super crazy sounding, but... Uh, a lot of people say that's a legitimate, like it's crazy sounding, but it can actually pull it off. Yeah, I love that project because there are a lot of different aspects. You know, there's the laser, there's how do you then um, get enough power when you're there to send a signal back. No part of that project is possible right now, but I think it's really exciting. Yeah. But do you, uh, do you see like yeah. human, uh, like a spacecraft with a human on it? So it's like a heavy one being like us inventing new propulsion systems entirely. Like, do you ever see yeah. that in the on the radar of propulsion systems like that, or are they completely out there in the impossible? Well, we're going to quickly leave the realm of what I can describe with any credibility. But yes. um, I, think, I think because of special relativity, if we try to accelerate some mass so close to the speed of light, it becomes infinitely heavy and then we just don't we'd have to like harness a lot of suns to do that or you know it's just that that math doesn't quite work out but you know in in my child's my childlike heart I believe that you know we're missing something um, whether it's you know dark matter or other dimensions and if you can just have some antimatter and a a black hole and then ride that around and somehow, right. you know, so, turn so that into like some mess with gravity somehow. Yeah. I, I feel like we're missing lots of things in this puzzle and that, you know, I wonder how hard that puzzle. Yeah. Right. Well, I can speak with confidence as a descendant of uh, apes that we don't know what the hell we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so there's uh we're like really confident, like physicists are really confident that we've like got most of the picture down. But right. it feels like 
Oh boy, it it feels like that, that we might not even be getting started on some of the essential things that um, that would allow us to engineer systems that would uh, allow us to travel to space much much faster. Yeah, and there's even things that are much more commonplace that we can't explain, but we've started to take for granted, like um, quantum tunneling, you know, um, just things like, oh, the electron was here with this energy, and now it's here with this energy, and it's just tunneling. Um, but so, I, you know, we're missing a lot of the picture. So, yeah, I don't know to, you know, use your same question from earlier. I don't know if you and I will see it, but... Um, yeah, someday. You, uh, you're the co-founder of just like we've been talking about Axion Systems. Uh, yeah. It's a, would you say, a space propulsion company? Yes. Broadly speaking. Um, so uh, how do you, big question, how do you uh, build a rocket company from like <laughs> a propulsion company from one person, from two people to 10 people plus? and actually, you know, take it to a successful product? Yeah, well, I think the early stage is quite, uh, I'm not supposed to use the word easy when you work in rocket science, but straightforward. Um, when you're working on something, you know, sexy, like an ion engine, it's more straightforward to raise money and, and get people to come work for you because the vision's really exciting. And Actually, that's something I would say is very important throughout is um, a really exciting vision because when everything, you know, goes to crap, um, you need that to get people yeah. getting themselves out of bed in the morning and thinking of the the higher purpose there. Um, and, you know, another thing along the way that I think is key in, in building any company is um, the right early employees that also have their own networks and can bring in um, a lot of people that, um, you know, really make the, this, the whole greater than, than just the sum of the early team. And how do you build that? Like, how do you find people? It's like asking, uh, like, <laughs> how do you make friends? But is there, um, is it, uh, is it luck? Is there a system? Like how, in terms of the people you've connected with, the the people um, you built the company with, is there some thread, some commonality, some pattern that you find it to be, to hold for what makes a great team? Uh, I think, you know, personally, a, a thread for me has been my network and being able to draw on that a lot, but also giving back to it as much as possible in like an unsolicited sort of way, like making connections between people that, you know, maybe didn't ask, but that um, I think could be really fruitful. And um, even, you know, weirder than that is just really getting, you know, having weird, uncomfortable conversations with people like at a conference and getting over the small talk quickly and getting to know them quickly and having a relationship that stands out and then being able to call on them later because of that. Um, and I think that's, it's, that's been because I'm introverted and I, you know, want to poke my eyes out instead of go and do small talk. And so yeah. I 
huddle in a corner with one person and, you know, we talk about aliens or things like that. And um, so, you know, that's all to say that, you know, having a strong network, I think is really important, but a genuine one. And let's see other ways to build a rocket company, kind of making sure you're paying attention to the sweeping trends of the industry. So everybody just cares about cost and um, being able to get out ahead of that and even more than we ever thought we'd need to as far as what we needed to price our systems at. You know, people for since the start of the the U.S. space industry, they've been paying 20, 25 million in adjusted dollars for an ion engine and seeing that now people are going to want to pay 10k for an ion engine um and just staying wow. out ahead of that and those kinds of things um so you know being out in the industry and and talking to as That's many crazy. people as possible so there's a drive i mean i yeah. suppose spacex really it's pushed that frustrating for me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so uh spacex really pushed this mm-hmm. uh yeah, the application of uh, I guess capitalism of driving the price down of um, basically forcing people to ask the question: Can we this can this be done cheaper? Um, th- this can lead to like big problems. I would say in the in the following sense, I see this in the car industry, for example, that uh, people have it's such a small margin for profit, like they've driven the cost of everything down so much that there's literally no room for innovation, for yes. taking risks. So like cars, which is funny because not until Tesla really, which is one of the, in a long, long time, one of the first successful new car companies that's constantly innovating. Every other car company is really boring in terms of their technological innovation. They innovate on design and style right. and so mm-hmm. on. That you that people fall in love with the look and so on, but it's not really innovation. The in terms of the technology in it, it's really boringly the same thing, and they are really afraid of taking risks. And that's a big problem for rocket space too. Is like you, if you're cutting out costs, you can't afford to innovate to try out new things, and mm-hmm. then yeah, exactly. That's definitely true with ion engines, then, right? Uh, so, but what? Um, so, how do you compete in this uh, in this space? Do you, by the way, see SpaceX mm-hmm. as a competitor? Uh, and what do you say in general about the competition in the space? Is it really difficult as a as a business to compete here? No, I. I don't see SpaceX as a competitor, um, and I see them as one day, not too long from now, a customer, hopefully. (laughs) Um, I mean, to compete against that, I think you just have to do things in an unconventional way. So bringing silicon MEMS manufacturing to propulsion, you know, NASA doesn't make ion engines using a batch mass producible technique. They have, you know one guy that's been making their ion engines for 20 years, like bespoke pieces of jewelry. So mm-hmm. uh, bringing things to what you're trying to innovate to to make them, you know, in our case, more cost-effective was, was really key. I like, I like the idea of uh, somebody putting out ion engines on like Etsy. Yeah, my um, advisor at MIT would, you know, the thruster chip I was holding up, he would wear one as a lapel pin. But in general, just on the topic of SpaceX, you know, 2020 has seen some difficult things for human civilization. 
And uh, it's been a lot of, first of all, it's an election year. There's been a lot of drama and division about that. There's been riots of all different um, reasons, racial division. There's been obviously a virus that's testing the very fabric of our society. But there's been really, I, for me, at least super positive things, which inspiring things, which is uh, SpaceX and NASA uh, doing the first commercial yeah. human flight, uh, launching humans to space and did it twice successfully. Mm -hmm. uh, what is that? Um, did you get to watch that launch? Did you, uh, what does it make you feel? Uh, do you think this is uh, first days for a new era of um, space exploration? Yeah, I did watch it. We played it outside on a big screen at That's our awesome. place. And um, I was a little, you know, they kept saying Bob and Doug, Bob and Doug. And, you know, astronauts usually are um, treated with a little bit more fanfare. So it felt very casual, but maybe that was a good a good thing. Like this is the era of commercial crude missions. And oh, it, was, it was a little bit more... Um, what is it? Um, what's his name? Chris Hadfield, like playing guitar. Yeah. It's more, it's a different flavor to it of, uh, yeah, exactly. More like fun, playful celebrity type. Yes, exactly. Astronaut versus, um, uh, the, the aura, the aura of the magical sort of her heroic right, element yeah. of the single human representing us in space. Yes. Yeah. I think that's all for the better, though. It's so cool that it's such a commonplace thing now that we send. You know, I can't believe that sometimes I'll have to, you know, you don't even realize that astronauts are coming and going all the time, you know, splashing back down. And it's just so common now, but it, that's quite magical, I think. Um, so, yes, we did watch that. I love, love, love that we finally have that capability again to send people to the space station. Um, and it's just really exciting to see the private sector stepping up to fill in where the government has pulled back in the U.S. and I think pulled back way too soon as far as exploration and science goes, probably pulled back at the right time for commercial things um, and, and getting that started. But um, I'm really happy that it's even possible to do that with private money and and companies. Do you like the the kind of the model of competition of uh, NASA funding? I guess that's how it works. Is like they're providing quite a bit of money from the government, and then then private companies compete to be uh, to be the delivery vehicles for yes. the, whichever the the, the 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 government missions, like NASA missions. Yes, I think for this type of mission is a little bit kind of straddles. Um, commercial and, and science. So I think it's good, but I do in general feel like um, we've pulled back too much on, you know, NASA's role in the science and exploration part. And I think our pace is too slow there, you know, for my liking, I suppose. What do you mean on the science? Uh, okay. So did you have, I mean, on the cost thing, do you feel like NASA was a little too bureaucratic in a sense, like, too slow, too heavy cost-wise in their effort, like when they were running things purely without any commercial involvement? So I suppose it's more that I just want the government to fund. I see, yeah. Um, and, and maybe NASA's not the best organization to 
to do it rapidly. Um, but I think that, you know, again, depending on the goals, we're just kind of at the very starting point of space exploration and science and and understanding. So we should be spending more money there and and not less. And um, other countries are starting to spend more and more, and I think we'll fall we'll fall behind because of that. So you have quite a bit of experience, first of all, start starting a company yourself, but also I saw, maybe you can correct me, but you, you have a quite quite a bit of knowledge of um, just the, in general, the startup experience of building companies that you've interacted with people. If is there, is there advice that you can give to somebody, to a founder, co-founder who wants to launch and grow a new company and do something big and impactful in this world? Yes, uh, I would say, you know, like I mentioned earlier, but make sure the vision is something that, you know, will get you out of bed in the morning and, and will get, and that you can rally other people around you to to achieve. Because uh, I see a lot of folks that sort of cared about something or saw a window of opportunity to do something. And, you know, startups are hard and, and more often than not, just being opportunistic isn't going to be enough to make it through all the really crappy um, things that are going to happen. So the vision just helps you psychologically to carry through the hardships. For you and the team. Yeah, you and the team. Yeah, exactly. To kind of younger people interested in getting into entrepreneurship, I would say, you know, stay as close to like first principles and and fundamentals as you can for as long as you can, um, because really understanding the problems. You know, if it's something scientific or hardware related, or um, even if it's not, but having a deep understanding of of the problem and the customers and what people care about and um, how to move something forward is more important than taking all of the entrepreneurship classes in undergrad. So being able to think deeply, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, have you been surprised about how much like pivoting is involved? Like basically rethinking what you thought initially would be the right direction to go? Or is there, yeah. if you think deeply enough that, uh, you can st stick in the same direction for long enough. So our, you know, our guiding star hasn't changed at all. Um, so that's been pretty consistent. But we, within that, we flip-flop on so many things um, all the time. And, you know, to give you one example, it's do you stop and build a first product that's well-suited to maybe a smaller, less exciting segment of the market or do you stay head down and focus on, you know, the big swing and, and trying to hit it out of the park right away? And we've flip-flopped between that. And there's not a blanket answer, and there are a lot of factors, but um, that's a hard one. And I think one, one other piece for the aspiring founder, um, spending a lot of time and effort on the culture and people piece is so important and is always an afterthought and something that I haven't really seen like the founders or or executives at companies purposefully carve out time and, and acknowledge that, yes, this is going to take a lot of my time and resources. And then 
But you see them after the fact trying to repair the, you know, bro culture or whatever else is broken at the company. Um, And I think that it's starting to change. um, But just to be aware of it from the beginning is important. Right. I I guess it should be part of the vision of what kind of place you want to create. What what kind of, like, human beings. Yeah, exactly. Like, you can't wait five, ten years and then just slap an HR person onto trying to fix it. Like, it has to be thoughtful from the beginning. Yeah. Um, Don't get me started on HR people. (laughs) Uh... Don't leave HR to HR people, but I'll just leave it at that. You didn't say it. I said it. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, HR's actual HR is really important. This is so, so yes, important. But yeah. so Culture is so important. Yeah. And then I also was surprised. Like, I thought you could say, here will be our culture and our values, and that it was kind of distinct from who I and my co-founder were as people. And I was like, yeah. no, that's not how that works. Yeah. We just kind of like ooze out our behaviors and then the company grows around that. So you have to do a lot of like introspection and yeah. self-work to not yeah. end up with a shitty culture. <laughs> it's kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a relationship, but as opposed to a relationship with two people, it's a relationship with many people. Yeah, and uh, you yeah you communicate so much indirectly by who you are. You have to be yes. You have to live it. Yeah. Uh, as somebody, I think about this a lot because generally I'm full of love and all those kinds of things. <laughs> but like, I also get like really passionate, and when I see somebody in in the context of work, especially when I see somebody who I know can do a much better job, and they don't do a great job. I can lose my shit in yeah. a way that's like Steve Jobsian. And you have to think about exactly the right way to lose your shit if you're going to, or if at all. Yeah. You have to really think through that because it sends a big signal. Uh, you know, sometimes that's okay. Like if you do it deliberately, like if you're going to do it deliberately, if you're going to say like, I'm going to be the kind of person that allows this and pays the cost of it, but you can't just think it's not gonna have a cost. Yes, this was like the first thing I worked on with my leadership coach was to how not to just snap at people when they were being an idiot. And um, first I got really good at apologizing. That was the first step because it was going to take longer (laughs) to fix the behavior. And then she, I've got, I'm actually a lot better at it now. And it started with things. She's like, every time you walk through a doorway, think, you know, calm and take breaths before responding. And there were all sorts of these little yeah, things little we did. And yeah. it was mostly just changing the habit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy, it's a long road. Okay. Yeah. So people love it when uh, we talk about books. Is there books, maybe three or so, technical fiction, philosophical, that had an impact on your life and you might recommend? And for each, is there an idea? or so that you uh, take away from it? Yes. Um, So I've been a voracious reader all my life. Um, And I'm always reading like three or four or five books at a time. Um, And now I use Audible a lot too and, you know, podcasts and things like that. Um, So I think the first one that stands out to me is um, 10, it's a novel, um, Tender is the Night by Fitzgerald. And I 
I read it when I was much younger, but I went back and read it recently, and it's not that good, so I'm not sure why it has like such an important place um, in my literary history, but um, I love Fitzgerald as an author because he's very, he has very like flowery prose um, that I can just picture what he's saying, but he does it in a such a creative way. I remember that one in particular because it, you know, I read a ton as a kid too, but it kind of set me, it was like the beginning of my adult reading life and um, getting into classics. And um, I kind of, I do feel like I, they seem intimidating maybe. And then I realized that they're all just like love stories. Um, uh, so. Yeah. Isn't everything a you love know? story? Yeah, yeah. It's really. <laughs> at the bottom. Even, like, you know, I don't know. I I was surprised that even like a lot of the Russian authors, um, you know, that's all. They're all yeah. just love stories. Well, um, humans are pretty simple. There's not much. Yeah. To work, there's not much to work with. So. So I think maybe that was it. It made like that whole world less intimidating to me, and and cemented my love that's for cool. reading. <laughs> People should have just approached the classics. Like, th- there's probably a love chick story flicks. in here. Yeah. <laughs> so it somehow boils down to a chick flick. Yes. So just relax and, and enjoy the ride. And uh, then, so what else? Um, changing gears quite a bit. Um, the beginning of Infinity. Do you know it by David Deutsch? Um, so he's a physicist. Um, I think at Cambridge or Oxford. And so I was introduced, like more formally, to a lot of the ideas, like a lot of the things we've talked about. He um, has a lot more like formalism and um, physics rigor around. And so I got introduced to you know more like jargon of how to think about some of these ideas, um, um, you know, like memes and, you know, DNA as, as ultimate meme, um, uh, the concept of infinity and, um, objective beauty. Um, but he has a really strong grounding in, in physics. Um, and then so there's a rigorous way of talking about these like big. Topics. Yeah. So that was very, mind opening to me to read that but it also i think is probably part of why i ended up marrying my husband is related to that book and then i've had some other really great connections with people because i had read it and so had they um so, i like how you turned that that bo- even that book into a love story i did i know <laughs> Somehow. no it's good it's good <laughs> it's, your robot it's a good has a heart <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> and okay the third uh series is it's just it's Harry Potter, um, of course, which yeah. somehow connects to. I, I haven't read Harry Potter. I'm really sorry. Oh, no. I'm, I forgive me, forgive me. Uh, but uh, I've read Tolkien, but just Harry okay. Potter, just haven't haven't gotten to it. But uh, uh, your company name is somehow I think connected to Harry yes. Potter, right? I so vaguely heard this. My, I always feel like I have to justify my <laughs> fandom. Um, The first three books came out when I was 10, so I went along this journey with Harry um, age-wise, and I read them all like nine or 10 times, all seven books, and I think um, anything that just keeps you reading is is what's important, and you know, there, I have lulls where I don't feel like reading anything, so I'll reread a Harry Potter or a, you know, trashy detective novel or something and and I don't really care and that's why I mention Harry Potter because it 
you know, whatever just keeps me reading, I think is important. And um, it was a big part of my life growing up. And then, yes, Axion, I, the official story of the naming of the company is that Axion is like a concatenation of Accelerate and Ion, but it actually came from Accio, the summoning charm. And then we just added an N and it was perfect. What's the summoning charm? It's just it's one of the spells. And yeah, it um, m- probably most notably, Harry uses it to summon his broomstick out of his dorm room when he's battling a dragon somewhere else. So he says the spell and the broomstick comes to him. So summoning in that way. Okay, there we go. <laughs> this is brilliant. So the the, the big thing is that uh, it's something that you've, carry with it's like your car it's your safe place you return to something yeah, like the harry it, potter that you know i reread them still um whatever keeps me reading i think is is the most important thing okay i got it so yeah i'm actually the same way in terms of the habit of it it's important yeah, yeah it's important to just keep, keep yeah re- keep reading Definitely. but i have found myself struggling a little bit to because i listen to a lot of audiobooks now I've struggled to then switch back to hmm. reading seriously. Because uh, just I read so many papers, I read so many other things. It feels like if I'm going to sit down and, fo- and have the time to actually focus on the reading, I should be reading like blog posts or papers or more condensed kind of things. Yeah. But there, there's a huge value to just reading long form still. Yeah. And, you know, my husband was never that into fiction, but then someone told him or he heard, um, you know, you learn a lot of empathy through reading fiction. Um, so you could think of it that way. Well, yeah, that's kind of what, yeah, yeah. And it's also fiction is a nice, unlike not less so with nonfiction is a chance to travel. I see it as kind of Mm -hmm. traveling Yeah, as you go to this other world and it's, it's nice because it's like much more efficient. You have to get on a plane, you don't have to (laughs) <laughs> and you get to meet all kinds of new people. It's like people say they love traveling. And I say I love traveling too. I just, yeah, read fiction. I told my um, three-year-old that that was why we read so much because we, you know, see the places in our mind. And I'm like, it's basically like we're watching a movie. You know, that's how it feels. And she's like, I prefer watching Frozen with popcorn was her, <laughs> yeah, was her right. response to that. Like, well, the, okay, well, you're yeah, three. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's some power to the imagination, right? That's yeah. It's not just like watching a movie because some uh, something right. about of our, our imagination, because it's, it's the words in the world that's painted somehow mixing in with our own understanding of yeah. our own hopes and dreams, our fears. It like mixes up in there and the way we construct build up that world from just the page so. yeah you're you're really creating the world just with the like prompts from right. the book right yeah. yeah yeah that's different than watching a movie yeah which is why it hurts sometimes to watch the movie yes. version and then you're like that's, that's not at all how i yeah uh, imagined it well we kind of brought this up in terms of uh the depending on what the goals are let me ask the big uh your your friends with Manolis, he's obsessed with this question. So let me ask the big ridiculous question about the meaning of life. Uh, do you have, uh, you ever think about this one? Do you ever uh, ponder the the reason we're here? These descendants of apes on this spinning ball in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, I don't, I don't think 
one ends up in the field of space propulsion without thinking of these existential questions. Uh, yeah, all the time. Or and, Bill is a business. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, yeah, we've touched on a lot of the different pieces of this, I think. So I I have a bunch of thoughts. Um, I do think that, you know, the goal isn't the meaning isn't anymore just to be like a petri dish of bacteria that reproduces and um you know where survival and reproduction are the main objectives and maybe it's because now we're able to answer these ask those questions um that's maybe the turning point um and instead i i think it's really the the pursuit and generation of knowledge and and so if if we're taken out by an asteroid or something, I think that it will have been a you know meaningful endeavor if somehow our knowledge about the universe uh, preserved. is oh. preserved somehow, um, and the next civilization isn't starting over again. Um, so that that's that's I always. I, yeah, I, I resonate with that. That I always loved the mission of Google from the mm-hmm. early days of making the world's sort of information and knowledge searchable. Mm-hmm. I always loved that idea. I always loved, I was donated, as people should, to Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, I just love Wikipedia. I, I feel like it's the, it. that's one of the greatest accomplishments of just a, a humanity of us together, especially Wikipedia in this open, like in this open community way, putting together different knowledges, like, on everything we've talked about today, I'm sure there's a Wikipedia page about ion engines, and yes. I'm sure it's pretty good. Yeah, like it's I don't know that's that's incredible, and obviously that can be preserved pretty efficiently. At least Wikipedia, and you just you'll be like human civilization is all like burning up in flames as there's this one USB drive slowly traveling yeah, out yeah, <laughs> with exactly. Wikipedia on it. Yep, <laughs> that's on from the beginning of our chat, that one lonely spacecraft. It just (laughs) Just... needs Wikipedia. And then it will have been a civilization well spent. Um, So pushing that knowledge along through like one little discovery at a time Mm -hmm. is is one of, is is a core aspect of the meaning of it, of it all. Yes. And I also, I I haven't yet figured out what the connection, you know, an explanation I'm happy with yet for how it's connected, but um evolving beyond just the the survival piece too i think like we touched on the the emotional aspect something in there about cooperation and you know love and so i in my day to day that just boils down to you know the pursuit of knowledge or improving the human condition and being kind love and knowledge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm pretty at peace with that as the meaning right now. Makes sense. While to me. you work on uh, yeah, exactly. spacecraft propulsion. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> like literal rocket science. Natalia, this is amazing conversation. You work on such an exciting engineering field. And I think this is like what 20th, uh, 21st century will be remembered for is space exploration. So this is yeah. super exciting. Uh, space that you're working on. So, And thank you so much for spending your time with me today. Thanks for having me. This was fun.
Thanks for listening to this conversation with Natalia Bailey, and thank you to our sponsors, Monk Pack Low Carb Snacks, Four Sigmatic Mushroom Coffee, Blinkist, an app that summarizes books, and Sunbasket, meal delivery service. So the choice is snacks, caffeine, knowledge, or a delicious meal. Choose wisely, my friends. And if you wish, click the sponsor links below to get a discount and to support this podcast. And now, let me leave you with some words from Carl Sagan. All civilizations become either spacefaring or extinct. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.